This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 226, Chris Warner, Holiday Flashback, Mountaineering, and a whole lot more. Hey friends, happy Monday to you. Kurt here. As Travis mentioned last Thursday, we are taking a few weeks off of recording brand new episodes to celebrate the holidays with our families, but we have some marvelous flashback episodes for you. Probably some you haven't heard or maybe some that you have, but are worth hearing a second time. Happy holidays to you, and we will be back with live interviews again in the new year. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have an amazing international climber with us, Chris Warner, who is here to tell us all about high-altitude climbing expeditions. Um, He's been teaching climbing since 1983, and he's been an international climber since 1987. He's led over 200 international expeditions. He's summited over 120 times on peaks over 19,000 feet. I don't think there are many people on the planet that can claim that one, Chris. That's pretty amazing. Um, He was the first American to solo an 8,000-meter peak, and he has summited five of the eight 8,000-meter peaks, including Everest, Alma de Blom, Lhotse K2, some others. Um, Chris, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Kurt. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor for us to have you on the show. We're really excited to kind of sort out what climbing is about and, mm-hmm. and why climb, which really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right into that. Um, why climb a mountain? What is your answer to that? Well, I think for me, it was the whole romance of it, you know, caught up in as a kid and just reading these books about famous explorers, just people doing really, really cool things. And, you know, I grew up in the, I was born in the 60s, so was in kindergarten when man first walked on the moon. Um, I actually got to spend this morning with this, with an astronaut. That was pretty cool. <laughs> and, wow. uh, yeah. So I just have always been caught up in that whole idea that you can have a challenge that would demand the absolute best in you and as a result of you know the best in you coming out that you realize you are uh you know you're you're capable of some pretty cool things so mountaineering was a perfect test for me as it is for a lot of other people you know like do i have the mental you know capacity and the intellectual endurance and the physical strength to be able to get up and down a mountain alive and you know the cool thing about those adventures is when you get to the top of one peak you just see more and more and more and Kind of mm. you just see an, an endless you know series of challenges that await you, and mountaineering has another cool aspect of it that I think things like you know like uh, that some other adventure sports don't have, or, or more endurance sports don't have. It's just the sense of uh, adventure is it goes on a longer scale. So like when we were on K two the last time, we were there for eighty nine days, and so you know it's a big huge chunk of your life. And you have these very complex relationships that exist during the course of the expedition, not just with your friends and, you know, your climbing partners, but with, you know, the people who live in the area, the people you hire as, you know, base camp staff, et cetera, and then all the other expeditions on the mountain. So it's, uh, I guess it's supplied me like an endless supply of these little narrative adventures that I get to go on and each time hopefully come back, a, you know, a better person for having endured all of that stuff. Yeah. I, you know, that's a, that's an excellent answer. We often ask people why adventure, you know, what is there mm-hmm. in it? What, what's the point? And man, what you just outlined, the just the overall life challenge, finding yeah. out kind of what you're made of, learning more about yourself, but then also it's it's the community aspect of it, getting to know people on, on a really intimate level in some very challenging situations. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like some, sometimes you see you know displays of heroism and altruism and sometimes you see displays of narcissism and selfishness and mm. so you really get to see you know, like the best and the worst of people <laughs> i i just had a great idea i think that we should start a uh, a service where we take people on a challenging climb who are considering getting married oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean think about it 
because these sorts of situations draw out the reality of people. You can't fake it. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think that's been done in outdoor education already. That's why they invented canoeing and tandem bicycling. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, of course. So how did you get into climbing? What's what's the first story? Yeah, so when I was in uh, high school, uh, our school uh, did field trips for kids who weren't so interested in learning. And I was invited to go on one of those field trips. And, you know, the, the purpose was to kick the crap out of me and turn me into a normal human being. And I went out there and instead of suffering, I actually loved every single second of it. We went rock climbing, we went uh, orienteering, you know, we were backpacking for five days and living underneath a plastic tarp in the woods. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And having grown up outside of New York City, I, I was completely unaware that this world existed. And I met these outdoor instructors and, you know, I remember them, um, you know, the, even though this is 37 years ago, I remember them like it was yesterday. And, you know, Joe Thomas was a kid from Somerville, Mass, and Rachel Holdsworth was a, a, a mountaineering guide from Alaska. And, you know, they decided that they wanted to spend their life putting people in these life-enriching experiences, you know, using the outdoors to challenge them to be better people. And I bought that idea, you know, hook, line, and sinker. So by the time I was I was 15, the first, when I went on that trip, by the time I was 17, I was working for that same outdoor program. And I've been doing the same thing ever since. Mm, how fun is that? It, it's it's amazing to me when I get to visit with someone like yourself who has made a lifetime, a career, and a passion out of something yeah. that they love. Yeah. You know, what a gift is that? Yeah, and it comes with sacrifice, of course, right, Kurt? So, um, you know, even when I started Earthchex, it was I, the first 10 years I made $19,000 a year, you know, reinvested every penny back in the business. And, you know, that came at a, that comes at a cost, right? You know, you, as a business person, I, I, I have taught leadership at the Warden School of Business for 16 years. So I'm a little bit of a business wonk. And, um, you know, they would call that an opportunity cost. I could have been an accountant like my father, and I could have made a lot more money during that time period. Um, but I chose, you know, this other path instead. And I think in the long run, you know, happiness wise, I came out way ahead. Financially wise, I'm not quite sure how that would have you know, it sorted itself out, but I'm content. So you you mentioned Earth Treks. You have four climbing centers now, is that right? Well, we'll have our fifth in about a month. So we're opening a gigantic one right uh, next to Washington, D.C. Wow. So where are these located? Well, we opened our first one in 1997 in Columbia, Maryland. Our second in 2002 in Timonia, Maryland. So these are suburbs of Baltimore. In 2005 into 2006, we opened up one in Rockville, Maryland. The Golden Colorado Gym we opened in 2013. And then this new Crystal City, Virginia gym will be open in uh, 2016. Right on. So it sounds like it was uh, a lot of sacrifice to get everything rolling, but things are really rolling now. Yeah, and that, I'll tell you, that is not because of talent. That is because of the wind being at our back. I mean, when I first started climbing, you know, it was for, you know, ne'er-do-wells and juvenile delinquents went climbing. Now, <laughs> literally, your daughter is a climber. Sure. So, you know, it's just completely, you know, you would have kept your daughter away from climbers 30 years ago because they were the, you know, the real, you know, rag a muffin dudes. <laughs> <laughs> it's where the term dirtbags comes from, right? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's just a completely different world now. And I've been lucky enough and Urchex has been lucky enough to just be kind of standing in the right place. And then the wind hit us and kept blowing us along. So no matter how terrible we ever were, like that, that you know, we were just carried towards where we are today. Mm, cool story. Yeah. Let's talk about what it's like to be on a really big peak. You know, I've okay. climbed a, a lot of 14ers, but I've not managed to break 15 yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I climb for my reasons, but what's it like to, to do one of these six, seven, eight thousand meter giants? Well, I think that, so that's, that's a complex question. And, and, and it's, I'd say a lot of the things have changed over the course of my career as a mountaineer. So the first time, as you said, I went international climbing was 1987. I went down to Peru. Um, and there just wasn't that many people down there. And you just could kind of do whatever you wanted to do, which was super cool. And we, in that era, we were not – we didn't judge people on whether or not they summited, but on the style in which they climbed the peak. So – you know, yeah, great that you climbed Everest, but really, really great if you climbed Everest by a new route. And, hmm. you know, the seven summits idea didn't exist back then. And I always felt that that was kind of a, the good thing about 
you know, the 80s and before that in climbing was climbers are really doing it for internal reasons. There was no fame or fortune involved at all. Sure. And as a result of that, you only did it because it pleased something inside your own soul. Um, and I think really with the beginning, you know, I might sound, I don't know, like an old has-been or something right now, but I think when they invented things like the Seven Summits or the 14 8,000-meter peaks, it created a different yardstick to judge people's success by in climbing. And adventure was less important than tagging the top. Mm. And I lived through that. I, you know, I guided Everest in 2000, 2001, and 2003. And in 2003, I guided the first ever reality TV show on Everest. So if you want to find a person who put the nail in the coffin, you know, I definitely am one of those people that are guilty of that. <laughs> uh, so when you go to Everest today, or, you know, even a Makalu or one of these other peaks, it's just, there's just so many more people there. Mm. And, you know, we really saw like in 2001, somebody from my group was the 2000th person to reach the summit of Everest. Wow. So it took, you know, over 40 years for the first two people to make it. And then 48 years later, there was, uh, you know, 1,998 more people summited the mountain. And that day was the record summit day in Everest at the time. There's 89 people on the top. So when you stand on the top of Mount Everest with 89 other people, it's like being in a subway car in New York, except everybody's got, you know, down jackets on. You know, the view is really cool, right? But it's a, you only see the view if you look away from the crowd. Um, and there was an article written after that expedition using our summit picture as a cover photo. And it was a National Geographic adventure, and it was entitled The Everest Mess. And the mess that they were talking about was not stuff like oxygen bottles and, you know, garbage left behind, but they were really talking about human behaviors that were happening up there. And, you know, I think to me, the saddest part was people going inside of the other people's, you know, sleeping in their sleeping bags, using their oxygen bottles, um, eating their food, etc., doing whatever it takes to, to sneak up to the summit of Mount Everest and not being concerned with the style in which they climbed it. And we've always had a, a saying don't reach the peak, but miss the point. Mm, good point. And I think this is a very, the more I look at this, this is a very um, American outdoor philosophy. And I'm sure it's shared by lots of individuals around the world and other cultures as well. But, you know, this is something that we see as being critically important as an, as outdoor adventurers, that not only do we reach the summit, but we climbed it in a style that we are going to be proud of forever. We, we have this, you know, philosophical belief that pursuing giant goals makes us a better person. And that's something we really have to make sure that we keep central to our, you know, wilderness ethos in the United States, because it really is something that's, that makes it, it's special, you know, kind of that, the American outdoor experience. Oh yeah. You know, the 14ers kind of as a microcosm of what you're talking about. I quit climbing 14ers a while back. I just gave it up because I got tired of the summit talk. <laughs> yeah you know it's how many of you climbed well i climbed this one in a snowstorm oh. man and, and, yeah. and I, I thought oh wait a minute that's not why we're here we're here because we love these mountains we love the experience you know and i started climbing 13ers and uh, of course th then you're you're all alone at the top and you, you have yeah. a, an amazing time but i've gone back to climbing some 14ers now but i was jaded for a little while there and i think it might be very much related to what you're talking about yeah i mean i'm jaded on the 8000 meter peaks which just bothers me because i want to go back for myself, you know, to do these, you know, like, look, I'd love the summit catching Junga. You know, like, that would be just amazing. And I'm like, oh, do I really have it in me to go back to a base camp on an 8,000 meter peak? You know, yeah. it's just, it's just not what it used to be. I mean, like, great that you have nonstop internet in base camp and great that you have a DVD, you know, not even a DVD player anymore, but you know, like, you know, televisions in your tent. I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I guess we. I certainly just let everybody know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last twenty years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring. Telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, 
G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. Hey friends, Kurt here. Happy holidays. You know, I wanted to remind you about the 180 stove and the 180 flame as possible holiday gifts for your loved ones. These are lightweight backpacking stoves that burn natural fuels. So we're talking about twigs, grass, leaves, pine cones. If it burns, you can cook with it. They also make wonderful windbreaks and stable cooking surfaces for alcohol burners and other lightweight stoves that need that extra bit of support. These stoves can be found at 180tac.com. The 180 stove is just 10.4 ounces. You have a cooking surface as large as a burner on your home range, and you can even grill steaks, fish. Fantastic for larger groups for backpacking. The 180 Flame at 6.4 ounces is a personal stove. It's excellent for boiling water quickly and efficiently. You don't have to carry fuel. You don't have to buy fuel. If you have an outdoors person in your family, then the 180 Stove or the 180 Flame will make a wonderful gift for the holidays. Well, let's uh let's rewind a little bit and say uh-huh. that you're on a, a giant peak, but this time yeah. it's like the good old days and you're not fighting the the mad throngs to the top. Um now we're talking about the reason that you climb it, you know, the purity yeah. of the climb itself. What is that like? Uh you know, I think it goes back to that romanticism comment. I mean, like I was just in Alaska, you know, a week and a half ago with a guy named George Lowe. So George Lowe is 71 years old. He put up a you know new route on the Kangsheng face on Everest back in the mid 80s. You know, he was a guy I grew up reading about, so quite a hero for me. And, you know, we just decided we want to go climbing together. And we just didn't really matter what we climbed. We just wanted to go be with each other. And we chose this peak in Alaska called Peak 11300 in the Ruth Gorge. And oh my God, every step was gorgeous. Like the sky was a crystal blue color and the ice and the rock was just so, I don't know, it was just so pretty. The, it was like a, just a powerful aesthetic experience shared with somebody that you have so much respect for. And we got stuck at one point. It literally was too hot to keep climbing the snow. We had to go across these double corniced ridges and up this super steep snow field. And we just, you know, like literally couldn't hold our body weight. So we had to mm. wait for it to freeze up again. So we carved a ledge about the size of, um, I don't know, like a, maybe 18 inches deep and about four inches or four feet wide. And we sat on it, butt to butt cheek and pulled out a stove and started melting water and making cocoa and drinking coffee and just telling stories, you know, like, like what's it like to be a dad and what's it like to climb the Kangsheng face on Everest. And it was just, it was just an amazing experience. And it was all about, you know, who you climbed with, not what you climbed. And that was, that's just pure mountaineering to me. The aesthetic, like the, the setting is so powerful that it makes the relationship better. Right. Yeah, I get that totally. It seems like when you are doing any adventure sport and there's a common interest and, and people get pulled out of the daily grind and then uh, the things that seem to matter in life, seem, they percolate to the surface. Yeah, know? yeah. But I can especially see that in your experiences on these mountains, just because of the challenge, the difficulties involved, as well as the setting, such a, a pure place. Yeah, and you know, you're you're really in a lot of those situations, you're demanding that your best person is there all the time. And when you build, you know, when you build a great team, you help each other become your best person. So when things go bad, like they have had on almost every single 8,000-meter peak I've ever been on, you know that you and your buddies are going to be there for other people. And whether you're, you know, rescuing strangers, you know, getting them CPR, trying to keep them alive, or, 
you know, helping guide people down through a blizzard, whatever it happens to be. I mean, these are really powerful, humbling experiences that should make you a better person when you go home. And can I tell you a story? Oh, please. You bet. So my my favorite story of mountaineering is about a guy named Willie Unsold. So do you know who Willie Unsold is? I don't. Educate me. Okay. So Willie Unsold was a, a famous mountaineer in the Tetons, etc. And in 1963, he gets invited on the first American Everest expedition. So Willie Unsold um, is hiking in towards base camp. And of course, he's not alone. There's roughly 30 climbers on the expedition. And the, the expedition's objective, is, of course, is to summit the peak. And the best way to get to the summit of Mount Everest is to follow the path of, you know, Tenzing Norgay and, you know, his his gang, you know, when they summited in 1953. Um, the, the Indians had been up after that. So the Americans are trying to make the third ascent of, of Everest. And he, Willie and a guy named Tom Hornbean start saying, well, why are we following the, the known path? Like, can we do better than that? Can we go on an adventure instead on Mount Everest? So they convince the leadership to allow them to have a, a tiny amount of resources and to attempt the west ridge of Mount Everest and to do a complete traverse of the peak, which they are successful at. When they get to the summit, it's late in the day. They run into two climbers who've come up the normal route. And so the four of them are trying to descend together. They get trapped behind a rock. Willie's partner's feet are getting cold. Willie takes his boots off, the man's boots off, and puts them on his chest and rubs his feet all night long to keep them from getting frostbitten. And when he stands up in the morning, he realizes that his feet are frostbitten. So he comes home. They amputate, you know, a bunch of his toes, etc. He has a, a bunch of kids. He has his beautiful daughter. He names her Nanda Devi after the sacred peak in, in India. And when Nanda Devi is in her 20s, she tells her dad, you know, like, come on, dad, why don't you lead an expedition to Nanda Devi? We could be, make the first American ascent to this peak. And so Willie Ansel gets the best climbers of, in America at the time. And they travel to northern India. And as they're walking into base camp, the shaman comes up to Nanda Devi, the beautiful daughter with the long blonde hair, and clearly nobody in this part of the world had ever seen a you know a young blonde woman walking through their villages before. And he goes, I know why you're here. You're the reincarnation of the goddess Nanda, the goddess of joy, and you've come here to die. Whoa. Yeah. Well, they go on to the mountain. The first team succeeds in reaching the summit. Nanda Devi's in high camp getting ready to go to the top. And a storm blows in, and they're trapped in this tent. And by the time the storm is over, Nanda Devi is dead. Wow. So Willie comes back to the United States, and he's interviewed by the press. And they're like, Willie, you've had the greatest achievement in, of an American in mountaineering, you know, going up the West Ridge of Everest, doing the first complete traverse of the peak. And now you've had the greatest loss that anybody could ever experience. But your team did get to the summit. So was this expedition a success or a failure? And Willie said – an expedition is a success not because you reach the summit. An expedition is a success only if you learn something about yourself on the trip and you apply it to life back at home. And that, to me, has always been my philosophy in mountaineering. You know, like, can we go there no matter what happens? Can we learn something about ourselves and make the rest of our lives better as a result? Oh, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well, Gotta yeah, love Willie. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a heart-wrenching story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, look, we're both we both have daughters, right? Yeah, I, I, I think you know, my wife enjoys the I would call it the the safer climbing, right? But mm -hmm. she always questions the really big mountains because of the risks involved, and she yeah. always asks the question, "Is it worth it?" But you know, I want to I want to bring in the fact that as I was going through some of your bio information, I see time and time again that you were turned back on a mountain when other parties got in trouble. Or you yeah. rescued these other parties when they got in trouble. And there yeah. are so many attempts where you didn't summit, but you came back. And when so many others didn't, or you helped others to come back who wouldn't have made it otherwise, um, tell us about that. Well, okay. In mountaineering, there's pouting, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so obvious if you have succeeded or failed by a quantitative measure, right? Did you get to the highest point or not? So... I, yes, I've turned back within, you know, two or 300 feet of 8,000 meter peaks at least three times, um, certainly within a thousand feet a number of times. Um, and each time I, I grieved over that, you know, like I mm. kicked rocks all the way down the moraine, you know, and pouted until I got back home. But that wasn't reason enough to not do the right thing. 
and and let me just tell you a different story to kind of make this point a little uh, more. So in I think it was 2012, there was a British woman who was trying to become the youngest British woman to reach the summit of Mount Everest. So she's climbing with her dad, six Sherpas, and 344 other knuckleheads trying to get to the top. So she summits the peak. She gets back home. She's interviewed by the papers, and they say to her, was there anything, you know, like, that's super cool you got to the top. Was there anything disappointing that happened along the way? And she said, yeah. She goes, it was terribly disappointing to have to step over a dying person to reach the top. Oh. And the reporter stops, like, what are you talking about? And she goes, oh, yeah, this guy... You know, he was coming down from the summit, having summited the day before, overcome by exhaustion. He sits down. He's, you know, slowly freezing to death. As we passed him, he sat up and asked for help. But myself, my dad, our Sherpas, and 344 other people decided that the summit was more important. You know, and she didn't exactly say that part of the words because she was clearly embarrassed for having stepped over this guy. But, like, if we can't be proud of ourselves mm. after the accomplishment, that, you know – that, that just tells the whole story that it wasn't an accomplishment. Like if we put accomplishments over partnerships, then we're in real big trouble. Like on your deathbed, you want to be surrounded by friends, not trophies. Absolutely. So we, you know, what's most important to me is partnership. I'm feeling pretty damn satisfied on the accomplishment side. Right. Yeah. You know, I had a, a friend who invited me and another of his friends to go uh, do some 14ers together. And so mm-hmm. we did. This is just a really simple story compared to that, but he uh, took off and left his other friend behind several times, and I started hanging back with the other guy thinking, well, this is kind of a weird situation. Yeah. And we were trying to do a traverse between two 14ers, and it got pretty sketchy. You know, we Mm -hmm. weren't roped, and and there was a lot of exposure, and his friend just obviously wasn't experienced enough for it. Grown man started crying. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those moments where, okay, he's reached his limit, and this is no longer fun. And the guy who invited him was angry because I said, all right, it's time to turn around. Wow, yeah. You know, and it was like we ruined his trip. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought, wow, really? And the the thing that, that I got out of that was, number one, I'm not climbing with him again. Yeah. You know, that's ridiculous. Number two, it's just exactly what you said. You know, we could have left that situation stronger brothers than before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know what so, I mean? So I do know what you mean. So we uh, – I do tons of work with, you know, the coolest teams you could ever imagine from covert ops teams to special ops teams to professional sports teams to Fortune 100 companies. And, you know, when we analyze how people judge us and how we judge people, we really judge everybody on two axes. So did we deliver strategic results and are we aligned with our core values? So this friend of yours, you know, the one climber, was clearly thought that what was most important was strategic results. Mm, right. And then for you, what was most important, obviously, was, you know, are we aligned on our core values? Correct. And in a perfect world, we're always going to surround ourselves who deliver strategic results and are aligned with our core values. And, you know, that's who we want to be. You know, the person that people can count on to deliver the results and are, you know, passionate and humble in the process, you know, that we could, they are trustworthy. They care about us. Yeah, very well said. I, I couldn't agree with that more either. I, I seek out people that share those core values and I'll even, I'll even opt for that over the results, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. in the end, it's, it's the brotherhood, it's the sisterhood that, that really makes the difference. Well, it's funny being in businesses all the time because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them the story of climbing K2 and all the crazy stuff that happens along the way, which is all sorts of, you know, like extreme levels of selfishness versus, you know, these powerful examples of heroism, et cetera, that go on in this story. And then I ask people to make judgments of people and almost everybody comes away with that. It's putting more weight on the core values than they do on the results part. You're like, oh, I would never climb with that team. But wait, that team got 75% of the people to the summit. Yeah, but they were jerks. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'd rather climb with that other team that only got 33% of the people to the summit. You're like, so yeah, I think there's a, yeah, most of us, I think, weight that core values thing over anything else. You know what? And, and we should. I, I think about a, a, an infant or a young child who's beginning to learn to walk, right? Mm-hmm. They fall down over and over and over again. And we pick them back up and say, try again. And they get lots of encouragement. And in the end, we all end up walking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's kind of ingrained in our nature that to fail is a part of the learning experience, right? But if we become selfish along the way, then what have we accomplished? 
Yeah, I mean, now we can get really deeply philosophical <laughs> because I, yes, to a point, and then the narrative changes. And I think the best thing that's happening in business right now is that people are more accepting of failure than they were, you know, 10 and 15 years ago. And certainly, you know, 30 years ago. And that's actually a result, I think, why, you know, we have so much more innovation now than we did, you know, 100 years ago. Sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of business, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you built a climbing career that was just amazing. And you've also um, guided all of these trips, which is, you know, a part of the business. You've built up Earth Treks, which is, by the way, folks, if you've not been to an Earth Treks, you got to go. Best climbing gyms I've ever been to, and I've been to a lot of them. Um, but what was it like to be doing all of these things in parallel here? I mean, were the challenges of building up the business kind of a parallel to the challenges you saw in the peaks? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, our, completely. Our our. Oh, I would have never, I absolutely did not have the courage to start my own business. And a coworker sat me down and said, for somebody who takes, you know, I just had come back from a, doing a new route in the winter, you know, on some peak in Nepal. And this guy's like, for somebody who takes so much risk with your personal lives, why won't you take one with your personal, your professional life? And it was like a light bulb went off. And I was, you know, I, I was, you know, whatever, found out to be a fraud. I'm like, okay, you're right. I have, <laughs> there's, I have no excuse not to take everything I learned in the mountains and turn it into a, into a business. And, you know, we spent a lot of time analyzing what makes a great mountaineering team. And to simplify it, I'll just tell you, there's, there's four main characteristics of any great team. And number one is that people are so passionate about the mission that the, they will put the mission of the organization ahead of their personal desires. And that passion is contagious, right? It uh, creates opportunity for success, even in under-resourced organizations. The second thing is you have to know where you're going and you have to communicate that to people. And in mountaineering, like every step higher you get, the further you could see on the horizon, the more data you collect, you can make a better and better decision. And you might climb up 2,000 feet to realize you better get down again, you know, because now you're seeing storms build up or, you know, it's taking you too long, whatever it happens to be. So being passionate, being able to craft and communicate a dynamic vision, and then it's the ability to build partnerships. And, you know, the two most important words in a partnership are trust and caring. And it's critical that we are worthy of people's trust, that we entrust other people, that we spend tons of time showing people that we care for them so they can do their best work. And the last part of this whole little recipe is perseverance. And, you know, it's not good enough just to work hard. And most, you know, people in corporations these days, you know, they're just in the asteroid belt. They're working their little tuchuses off. But we really have to learn from sports teams and, you know, covert ops teams, et cetera, that it's really not just hard work, but it's smart work. And so our stopping and talking and reflecting upon what we've just gone through to learn from it is critical for our future success. So, you know, if there's four things that are critical to being a successful mountaineering team is that everybody has to be ridiculously passionate. Otherwise, you're just not going to go through the suffering that it takes. You know, you have to have a vision of where you're going. Like quite often, you know, you're creating a new route, right? So you're envisioning what's possible and solving all the problems along the way and preparing for those problems so that you have the right equipment with you. And your partnership, like, man, when things are really scary, if you don't trust your belayer, you're not going to be able to do the hard moves. And, you know, lastly, that perseverance thing, like, it's going to take a lot of hard work, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, those four things combined make for a great business and a great uh, mountaineering team. You know, I think that's great advice for almost any endeavor. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, you know, Kurt, that's why I get paid the big bucks to go into big corporations and tell them how to fix themselves. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're a keynote speaker and an author. If people want to uh, want to sign you up yeah. as a keynote speaker, then how do they get in touch with you? Well, the best thing to do is first visit my website, which is chrisbwarner.com. So Chris is in boywarner.com. And you can already just Google me, Chris Warner Climber. Um, but there's a lot of stuff about the kind of work I do, the kind of groups that I work best with. And yeah, there's videos on me of speaking to groups. There's a, you know, we filmed our, our K2 expedition for NBC and we were actually nominated for six Emmys, got to go to the Emmys, which is pretty cool. We didn't right win. So, but that was still fine. Um, anyway, that whole movie is, there's a link on there to that movie. 
So if people want to sit back one day and watch what it's like to climb K2, they can do that. Very cool. And let's talk about your book a little bit here, High Altitude yeah. Leadership. That that book is is ranking really well on the charts too. Uh, yeah, thanks. We I'm really pleased. You know, like I first I was approached by my co-author to 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 do this book with him and I thought of it like a marathon. Like, can you run a marathon? Like, if you've never run a marathon, if you've ever climbed a big peak before, you have this, you know, question in your mind, is it even possible? So, you know, we, we pulled it off. Luckily, it's had a really, really powerful shelf life. Um, I've had so many people call me over the years and saying how it's changed their life. I mean, you know, it's kind of scary when people call you up and say, hey, I just quit. I read your book and then quit my job. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, you're not sleeping in my basement, <laughs> so. but yeah, it's it, it's a real. I'd say it's one of the. It was it's a nice, honorable experience to have written a book that has has so much traction and has opened so many doors for me. Sure. Well, just so people kind of get a a parameter for the book, um, who does this resonate with? Who's the target audience? Uh well, it really was originally written as a business book. And what we did was we kind of took the metaphor, like, so when I was guiding Everest, we used to tell people there's 19 ways that you can die on summit day. And you need to know those 19 forms of death. So if you see them coming toward you, you can, you know, turn around and go back home. Right. And we took the same approach to looking at how teams, what, what causes failure in teams. And we identified eight categories of failure. And then we really try to use the book as a way to teach people how to recognize these ways that teams fail so that they can, you know, correct and not die. And it was cool. Like we, uh, you know, I think one of the things that makes it really fun is every chapter is really based around a mountaineering story. So, you know, there you are hanging by a fingertip and this thing happens and, you know, we explore this thing kind of from a scientific basis, you know, and then, um, and then hopefully the people live, you know, in the mountaineering sure. part of it. So, and there's pictures. So even if you're a terrible reader, there's great pictures. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to get a copy of it and uh, go through that one. That sounds really, really good. Yeah, um, you can. It's on Amazon. It's you know, it's it's simple to find. Okay, high altitude leadership. Yep. Got it. And your co-author's name? Uh, Don Schmenka. Don Schmenka. Okay. And we met on a mountaineering expedition. He was a client of mine. We were doing a fundraiser for cancer, and he was a participant. Right on. Yeah. Well, let's think about the listener who hasn't done climbing, who says, man, that sounds appealing, but I don't even know where to start. Um, what advice do you have for somebody? Well, now it's really simple, right? Go indoors. And <laughs> it's the, I think the, you know, look, you and I both climb indoors. We love climbing outdoors. The coolest thing about the indoor climbing scene is that it's a community of people that you will resonate with and you'll be kind of just sucked up into their, their powerful energy. And, you know, of course the classes are great and the skill development, et cetera, but it's, you know, it's a very accessible way to get into climbing and it's, you'll find out that climbing is much more than you thought, you know, in the sense of this gigantic community of people that are doing super cool stuff. And, you know, you get to be friends with all these people and you inspire them and they inspire you. So I, I would check out your local climbing gym. Well, that's good. So uh, what are the benefits of climbing? And climbing indoors specifically, I like to bring it up because it's it's a lot easier to get to the indoor gym on a regular basis and, yeah. and there are benefits to that. But what are the benefits to climbing in general? Well, I mean, I think it's, there's, a, there's a billion, right? So there's obviously the physical aspects. You know, it's a great whole body workout. It's great for increasing your flexibility. Um, it's a great intellectual challenge. I mean, every climb is, you know, is a challenge. It's a, it's a, it's a problem that has to be solved. It's a great emotional, uh, you know, place to, you know, improve because you're, you know, you're confronting real things like real fear, you know, like real opportunities for failure, et cetera. And, you know, you requires that you develop trusting relationships with your belayer. So there's a lot of emotional aspects that come of it. You know, then if you take it away from home, like the further away from home, it's a great excuse to go explore new parts of the world, you know, to meet people you would have never met before. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, for people who've been climbing for 50 plus years, there's still things that they benefit from. Oh yeah, no doubt. You know, Chris, years ago back in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. um, there was a, a program there where kids who got into trouble, yeah. You know, with the courts, instead of going to some juvenile delinquent center, they would go to a, a program that tried to equip them with some 
um, some skills for life, just call it that way. Yep. And a buddy and I had the great opportunity to, to grab some of these kids and to take them out and teach them how to repel. Uh-huh. So there was a 120-foot bluff, and we would just teach kids how to repel on this bluff. And I've brought it up on the show before, but it, it so impacted my life. I It was fun, of course, to be at the top and to try to encourage someone to take that first step over the edge yeah. and actually go down. But to be at the bottom when they actually reach the bottom and to see the look in their eye when they have overcome something that maybe they thought they would never be able to do. They learned something that's fundamental about themselves, about what they're capable of and their own character. And to see these kids, a lot of them with this huge facade and chip on their shoulder and, you know, I'm the tough guy, you know, just at the bottom, get real, you know, the joy that you saw in their faces just because they overcame a challenge. And I, I have to throw that in there as well. You know, not, not everybody has that much of a challenge to, to do a rappel or to climb in an indoor gym, but the people that are finding their challenges and overcoming them, it's just such an amazing experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of our, you know, understanding of what makes human beings so cool is, you know, that they, they seek out these, you know, learning experiences. And as a result, they hopefully become better people. Sure. And then, give something back to the next person, the next person, next person. So, yeah, that's neat. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about earth tricks. We touched on it, but there are a lot of people out there that have never been to a climbing gym. So if they walk in the door, what are they going to find there? Well, it's so climbing gyms have really changed when we've, you know, first got into business back in the mid nineties, they were really clubhouses for climbers. So, you know, you found painted plywood with plastic holes bolted to the wall and, you know, it was, <laughs> they were, they were super cool places, you know, for their times. Now, you know, it's changed so much. I mean, now they're, you know, premier health clubs and there's fitness rooms and pro shops and, you know, really nice bathrooms and yoga studios that are all inside this climbing community. Yeah. Um, describe the, the route system that you would have in a typical gym so people can get a feel for the variety of things that are there. Yeah. So the cool thing about a climbing gym is that you can, you, you constantly change the, the route. So the, you know, the climb that goes up the wall, you know, in our, in our gyms on the rope climbing, for instance, it's generally about a three, you know, 10 week to 12 week turnaround time. So every, you know, 10 to 12 weeks, the climbs are stripped and then new ones are put up and it's a constant rotation. So, um, and you know, the route setters, that's like the, it's a very physical form of artistry and they are trying to help your body move in a way that's gonna I don't know just get you really fired up to be a person you know like the way that they make you twist and turn and you know pull and push to get to the top so that's a you know that's a real you know I think one of the better things that have come out of climbing in the last 20 years is is you know just becoming more artistic in the route setting and with that then comes the need for more artistic shaped handholds and footholds and it's creates more of a visual effect now when you come in so there's a lot of Think of a climbing gym as a five-star restaurant, and mm. there are subtle things that are done in a five-star restaurant to make you enjoy the food. You know, it's the lighting that goes into it. It's the service that goes into it. It's the, you know, the crispness of your napkin, you know, the shine of your fork and knife. So there's lots of pieces that make up, you know, the experience that really I think to somebody who's never been in one before, they it might take them a while to pick up on, you know, what's the source of the magic or why is this place a little bit more magical than that place? Yeah. Well, I know that the earth tracks in golden where I climb, um, it's just delightful. I mean, every time you choose a route you haven't done, you can choose a difficulty level, but mm-hmm. as you're trying to go up the route, there's always a problem. There's a crux, you know, there's something there. Yeah. Where you, how do you do that? And you got to figure it out physically and mentally before you're mm-hmm. going to be able to, to pull it off. And that's part of the challenge of it that I think is really fun. Not not to mention the great workout and the just the sheer joy of getting yeah. up. You know, and it's shared, right? That's the difference between like a normal, like if you go to you get on a treadmill in a gym, which is you know super cool form of exercise, but it's it's an individual activity, right? And even in what we call bouldering, which is where you're climbing without a partner, you don't, you don't have a rope. You're still you're generally doing it as part of a group. You know, there's a group of people bouldering, and so you're, you know, hoping for the best for the other person. You're giving them advice. You know, there's just, you're just more engaged with people when you climb as fitness than really than just about anything else as fitness. 
Oh, yeah. And it's cool, too, just to sit and watch people climb <laughs> to see how they solve the problem. And you see yeah. people do stuff. It's like, wow, now that was a creative solution. That was amazing. Yeah. And, you know, people might think we're just talking about, you know, getting up some challenge on a wall. But, no, there's a lot of a lot of energy there, a lot of neat stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't have uh, TVs in our fitness rooms. So, like, if you're on the treadmill for, you know, whatever, your hour workout, you're, you're looking through a window at climbers. And I had a, a a customer one time send me an email, and she said, "You know, at first I was really angry that you didn't have television. She's like, I came there to get my cardio workout. You know, I wanted to watch CNN, and then it dawned on me that I was watching something so much better. I was just watching humanity." And she went on and like the most the best poetry ever to describe, you know, what it was like to just watch you know dads climbing with daughters, and you know boyfriends climbing with girlfriends, and you know sixty five year old men and women, you know, like meeting after work to hang out with each other. And I was like, you got it. (laughs) That's That's it. Why are you running but to be a member of that community? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very fun. Yeah. Well, Chris, we're running a little bit short on time, but would you close us out with a, a story about climbing on a mountain somewhere that has been an inspiration to you and maybe it'll be inspiration to the rest of us? Okay, but you realize I'm the worst marketer for the sport of mountaineering, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, so we're in northern India on a peak called Shivling, which is uh, 21,500 feet tall, and we get caught in a blizzard. Mm. And the blizzard hits us. It's almost like a wall of blizzard hits us, and we're you know 5,000 feet up this peak. And we have no choice but to rappel down to the last flat spot that we saw which is half the size of your kitchen table. So oh. there's room on this top for two of us to, to lay there, curled in the fetal position, but not you can't put up a tent because there's no room for a tent. The third guy, which is me, uh, I found a flake of rock peeled away from this main pedestal, and I put my feet between the flake of rock and laid on this kind of snow that was blown in there. And the blizzard starts to rage, and it doesn't stop. It goes on for a full day. It goes on for the next night. It goes into the next day, into the next night. Somewhere along the lines... Uh, one of the guys on the upper ledge, as he rolled over, knocks the cook pot off the ledge. Oh, no. So now we have no way to melt snow into water to rehydrate our dehydrated food. Eventually, the blizzard ends, and uh, we wanted we want to descend, but the, the avalanche danger is too great. Literally, the mountain is just peeling layer and layer of ice and snow off of it. Wow. And we have no choice but to go up and over the mountain. And we know we need to drink. We haven't eaten or drinking in days. And we have this piece of uh, tin foil that we were able to melt a half a cup of water for each person. And we each eat a single Twix bar and leave and start climbing at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, so almost 24 hours later, we're still climbing. And uh-huh. we get underneath this gigantic overhang of snow. And it's a, what's it called? A cornice, like a giant wave of frozen snow. And I literally have to tunnel directly up through this cornice. It was like a, like a, you know, like coming out of a manhole cover. And it was about 15 feet of tunneling straight up to get to the point where I could pop my head up. And we pop up onto this uh, big snowy ridgeline. And it's the first time that we can sit down in, you know, since the storm. And so we sit down, the three of us together, and we're looking at each other. We're completely overcome by exhaustion. And we make a decision, or we have to make a decision, do we continue to go to the summit or do we get the heck off this thing by going down the mountain by a path that we've never, like in a way we've never seen to drop into a valley we've never been into before. But it's the only way to to, to get off this peak. And we actually decided to continue going to the top for some stupid reason. (laughs) (laughs) We uh, were unable to get there because the, the technical difficulty is too great. So we're stopped 50 feet short of the summit. And we now start to descend. And as we're doing rappel after rappel after rappel, on the sixth rappel, I'm the last guy to go. And as I lean back on the anchor, the anchor pops. And I'm now flying through the air. And I fell 450 feet through the air and slammed into the side of the mountain, caused an avalanche, bounced out another 50 feet, was buried like a dart in the steep snow. And then the avalanche hit me. And by a miracle, it did not knock me off the peak. Well, my two climate partners, you know, down climbed to me. They checked me out the whole thing. And we still have like 3,000 feet of climbing to descend. And it takes us another day and a half to get off the peak. And I walked away from that mountain with a tiny scratch on my nose, even though having fallen, you know, a total of 500 feet. That's crazy. Uh, 
Yeah, but I had severe <laughs> psychological damage. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> to this day, I don't like rappelling. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Did, it, it's amazing that anyone can fall that kind of a distance and survive, but the landing worked out. Yeah, you do. Yeah, stuck the landing, man. (laughs) I think, you know, I think I wasn't, literally, I just felt I was not fated to die that day. So that day was September uh, 17th, uh, 1989. So September 17th, 1999, I'm on this giant peak in Tibet. And it starts to snow and we start to descend and I get caught in an avalanche and I'm pulled. Luckily, I was connected to a rope and I ended up getting pulled down for a couple hundred feet. The rope never snapped. And eventually, I was swept to the side of the avalanche. I was buried up to my neck. And uh, it was exactly 10 years to the day after <laughs> I was killed in India. So two, September 17, 2009 comes around. And I stayed in my house on the couch all day. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is it your lucky day or your unlucky day? I think it was my unlucky day, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, you're right. That doesn't sell me on, on big mountain climbing necessarily, but it's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, well, Chris, crazy stuff happens out there. One more time, how can people find you? You know, I'd suggest... I'd go to both to the Earth Checks uh, website and look up Chris Warner Climber on Google, and you could find my speaking website. You know, that's the best source for stuff like the you know the television shows and all the other stuff that I was involved with. Well, fantastic! Thank you so much for your time today and for being on the Adventure Sports Podcast. It's it's a real honor, and it's been a ball. Well, thanks, Kurt. Thanks for inviting me. This is great work you're doing. All right, thank you, and to all of our listeners out there. You don't have to summit at 8,000 meter peak to get out there and have some fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Hope that you have a wonderful holiday season and give the gift of love this year. That's what really matters.